recording. Good afternoon, this is Jim Crotty, and this is the Crotty Farm Report. Today, my guest is Gregory Abbott. Uh, oh, by the way, this is Friday, uh, August 18th. I think this is around Bill Clinton's birthday, if I remember, uh, somewhere around this date, it's 17th or 18th or 19th. But anyway, uh, greetings from Crotmo in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, today I have an old friend who uh, is a, was a former high school debater at my alma mater of Omaha Creighton Prep and uh, much smarter about debate than I was. I, I use charm and connections to do well in debate. Uh, Greg actually was a great debater uh, as we understand it and went on to debate in college quite successfully at a school I went to for debate camp, Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, Greg then smartly, unlike me, became an attorney and is a specialist in internet law and commercial litigation. And most recently was involved in uh, a very interesting startup, which he can tell us about uh, out in uh, California related to blockchain and cryptocurrency and all sorts of cool things uh, in terms of the future of, uh, of digital currency. Uh, but uh, Greg is also very involved in Minneapolis politics, Minnesota politics, uh, and uh, post uh, post George Floyd was very involved in um, various issues related to policing in that city, and is uh, is just super super smart about the law, about politics, and uh, is sensible. Uh, is a Democrat, uh, very common sense Democrat, uh, which, as you know, in my rants, I think there is a less of them than there used to be. But he'll beg to differ with me. So it's always important to have people that disagree with you. Uh, I'm not sure we fully disagree, but there's there's probably some disagreements uh, in uh, some of the recent Trump uh, some of the recent Trump indictments, and um, and so today we're just going to talk about one. We may talk about the Jack Smith, the D.C. one, but we're going to talk about the indictment of uh, Trump in uh, Fulton County, Georgia, by uh, the D.A. there, uh, Fannie Willis. Uh, Greg, glad to have you on the Crowdy Farm Report. Uh, it's good to see you again, Jim. It's uh, it's been a I don't know, a few weeks, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's nice to uh, nice to talk to somebody who cares about some of the same things. Exactly. Before we begin talking about our friend Fanny Willis, uh, uh, in quotes, uh, tell me a little bit about the work, if you can. Uh, you were working for a fellow member of our podcast that we had for a while called the Real Debate Podcast (RDP). You can still find that, I think, on Apple and on Spotify. Uh, but our friend Jared, who was on that podcast. Uh, who was really quite the um, the herald when it came to uh, letting letting us know on that podcast that Joe Biden was going to beat Donald Trump, and he was quite prescient on that. So I miss Jared. He offered a very interesting perspective. But you ended up working for Jared. So briefly, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the company is called Cosmic Wire. Uh, you know, we founded it in uh, the middle of the pandemic. Um, and I think partly because uh, Jared's main source of income, he, he was a musician who was touring and all of a sudden that went away and he found himself some time on his hands and decided to, you know, jump into this uh, you know, bleeding edge Internet stuff. Um, you know, Cosmic Wire is a, a Web3 company. Uh, we uh, like the blockchain. We like a lot of the Web3 technologies that go with the blockchain. Uh, we are the first uh cross-chain Web3 company. We are uh, we are designing products that can uh, go from chain to chain that are translated uh, from chain to chain. Uh, we have uh, we have a background in developing uh, uh, kind of music, uh, NFTs. Uh, we've done some metaverse development. We still do some met very good metaverse development. Um, but our, our our basic 
point is to, you know, let's go where Web3 takes us. And we've had, I think, very good kind of, um, I think we've dealt with the market pretty well. We, we're actually not on the cryptocurrency side of the of the Web3. We're definitely more on a content side uh, or a, a transactional side. We have, we're developing some, uh, a really nice clearinghouse technology that uses the blockchain that it's going to solve, I think, a lot of um, commercial inefficiencies uh, in some particular markets. Uh, um, uh, we've got some, got some really interesting stuff, um, uh, and it's it's just been it's been a roller coaster. I mean, the the even though we don't do the currency side of it, the crypto crash did kind of affect us. Uh, the NFT market is you know been changed a lot, I think, by where things are these days, and uh, we've had to kind of roll with the punches on that. But we've come out of it. We just uh, we just got our seed funding round closed in July last month, and. Uh, uh, we've got, you know, we've got a runway, we've got some business plans, we've got some incredible people working with the company. I think the, the, the talent that we've collected in this company is just mind blowing to me. And uh, uh, it's, it's the, the, the ability to work with people who actually know what they're doing uh, is, is, is pretty amazing for me. I mean, I, I'm for a long time, I was a solo practitioner as a lawyer, and I've had some bright clients, but I've had a lot of not so bright clients. And um, um, it's nice that, you know, when people get it and you don't have to explain it to them twice and then they take your advice, you know, which, you know, it's 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 really a different world, I think, cool. you know, uh, uh, in some respects. And, you know, Jared Fink, uh, the you know, the guy I founded the company uh, is a former client of mine. And I mean, he literally is, I think, uh, you know, I mean, you look at the personality types of people who can found successful companies and grow them very quickly. He's very much in that mode. I mean, he definitely has that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 uh, his mind moves very quickly. I mean, he's mm -hmm. one of these people that's just a master at reading trends, reading the room, mm -hmm. reading people, and uh, and he just, and he acts on those very quickly. I think the the cycle inside the company in terms of being able to make decisions that stick is is very quick. No, uh, you know, in this no. in this internet world, speed matters. So yeah. Now, in terms of people's understanding, what is Web three? Just shortly, what is it? What do you mean by that? Well, it's it's. You know, that's an interesting point. I actually have tried, I'm trying, I'm struggling writing a white paper trying to define what Web3 is. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the the the, the technical non-sexy answer is it's blockchain, you know, which is the same technology that Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies using. Now, blockchain basically is a decentralized ledger uh, in which transactions are permanently recorded and everybody has access through uh, through the blockchain, through the internet. To see what these transactions are and the transactions are validated by a, there's a process by which these transactions are validated mm -hmm. to make sure that they're authentic and so and no one person can control the blockchain in theory and so um so decentralized the key to the web3 is decentralization based on on this ledger technology okay um, so uh, let me but, but i think more broadly though more broadly though web3 is like the next phase of the internet whatever it is right i mean i i tend to tell people like you know web1 was email mm -hmm. web2 is amazon and facebook uh and now web3 is what's coming next and so um you know you're kind of you know Air, you know jared's favorite metaphor is you know we're building the airplane as we're flying in the air and mm -hmm. that's kind of if I were to describe Web three as like we're you know I mean it's it's not quite we're making it up as it goes along but it's there is a lot of fluidity that um, um, that some people have a hard time dealing with. Okay, so I like it. So let's use this as a metaphor: uh, the transparency that uh, the blockchain promises uh, to talk about uh, a hot topic, uh, which is of course the recently introduced indictment against 
one Donald John Trump, uh, who is under indictment uh, for indictments now uh, criminally. And then I think he got, he's got four to five other civil cases. I'm not, there's a couple of surrounding E. Jean Carroll, but anyway, under a lot of um, legal scrutiny. So let's talk about the most recent one, which I've written about on the Crotty Farm Report. Folks can take a look at my take on the situation. Uh, but I really want to hear an alternate take um, and then um, and then take it from there. So in our pre-pod discussion, you were saying that everything that Trump did up to a certain date was technically legal. And then he crossed a line, which I guess you're arguing is when Fannie Willis enters the picture. He, she would not have entered the picture before that bright line. Can you explain that? Well, sure. The, uh, there's a federal law called the Electoral Count Act, and it was passed, I believe, in 1878 after the debacle of the 1876 election. And it defines uh, a, a process and a schedule for how uh, the states are to pick the electors uh, that they, the, in their votes, they then send to, to Congress to be voted on. And um, I think that it's the second, I want to say the second Tuesday in December. Um, but there's a the, there's a, uh, there's a deadline for the states to certify their electors by de roughly December 12th, December 13th, something like that. Uh, and I think in, I think in 2020 it was it was a December 13th deadline. And so and if you don't, if a state does not certify its electors by December 13th, um, it risks not having any electors at all under the under the way the statute works. Right. So it's like states are highly motivated. If they're going to participate in the in the presidential election, they're highly motivated to get the certifications done, right? So, um, and you know, after the election, I mean, I I do not think that there are some. I don't think the the argument that the election was stolen or that Trump was fraudulently deprived of his uh, victory. I mean, all of the arguments I think that Trump has made in that respect are are meritless. But he has, like any candidate or any litigant in America, um, he had the right to go to court and try to vindicate his arguments. And in fact, the Trump and the Trump campaign filed something on the order of like 60 lawsuits, 60 or 61 lawsuits. And almost universally, they lost. I think they, they, they got like partial relief in Pennsylvania on some um, mail-in absentee ballots that weren't dated kind of a thing. So it's like it's their, their record, their record in litigation was 0, 60, and 1, mm -hmm. I think. And so, okay, and so so, so but all of that is perfectly legal, right? I mean, that is you know, Al Gore went to court in 2000. I mean, it's this, it's the American way, you know, okay. go to court. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a lawyer, right? I mean, I can't, I can hardly complain about people who do that. So, um, um, but at the point that the courts all reject the challenges and the process goes forward, and and the 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 electors gather at the various state capitals and they get the certificate, they get the document. According, every state has got a state law, by the way, that governs this process. Right? Mm -hmm. This is not some kind of random like, oh, let's get, get let's get together at a coffee shop and vote for president thing. Mm -hmm. It's there is a very rigid process where you have to meet at a certain day. You mm -hmm. you know you the secretary of state uh, usually of the of the state certifies who won the popular vote in the state. Um, that means that the slate of electors for Biden was picked. So they meet at the Capitol and then they sign a formal document, which is certified as an official document of the state of Pennsylvania or Georgia or whatever, saying here are our 15 electors who are all casting their votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 
Once that document is signed and certified, whether it's certified by the state of, uh, Secretary of State or by the governor, depending on state law, it's done. It's over. That is that document has the force of law. And it is a it is, is a fact that those electors were chosen by that state. When you try to undermine the outcome um, after that, then you get into this is where you get into like uh, like the fake elector scheme. And that's where you get into like fraud when Trump continues to make the argument that these electors are invalid. Um, um, he is essentially arguing that the states have committed fraud through their normal, you know, judicial and legislative processes. Mm -hmm. And 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 he's, I mean, he, it's it's one thing to contest election. It's another thing to like claim that the election is is uh, even after it's certified is is invalid. And okay, that, so that, let's stop there because there's so much to unpack. So let's just go through a couple of things. So it is a quick process. I mean, you must admit it. The election let's say the seventh of November around there, eighth. Uh, and then you have to, let's say, December 12th, 13th, 14th, whatever, the middle of December. Right, right. Um, you got to go fast. I mean, if you if you and, and the problem is, is that the actual forensic work of uncovering fraud does take time. I'm not defending Trump, but it is tight. Um, and I so I want to understand his logic after the votes are certified in Georgia. Um, he's I guess his argument was. Mike Pence, don't certify because we need to go back and spend more time to figure out if these ballots were legitimate. Is that is that kind of the argument? Well, that's that's the argument. The problem is it misstates the law. I mean, Mike Pence didn't have the discretion to be able to reject votes at that point. You know, it's like the 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 way the Electoral Count Act works and the way that each individual state's laws work that roster of electors on December 13th is final. Mike Pence does not have the ability to override state law. Um, and Mike Pence does not have the independent ability to go say, um, you know, I mean, he, he it's what's called a ministerial act under the law, right? I mean, Pence's role in that process is entirely um, um, pro forma, right? It's very so pro it's forma. Not I get that. So my argument is, not argument, my question for you is, um, Supposedly, I kind of remember this, but I think in 2016, 70 Democrats voted to decertify that Trump legitimately won that election. Is is that allowed? Well, again, it's there's a process in the Electoral Count Act. If um, if a certain number of House members or a certain number of senators object to the certification, then what happens is immediately they meet in joint session to count the votes. And if there's an objection that meets the threshold, I think it was like, um, like, I forget the number. I think it's like, it's like 20 house members or five senators. And that's been changed by the way, the electoral count act has been amended. Now it takes like 20% of the house to do this. But, but if, if a certain number of house members object, then, then each house immediately separates and the Senate um, um, evaluates the, the votes for vice president. The House evaluates the votes for president. And they, they both independently uh, evaluate the objections. And, uh, and then you have a vote. Uh, and then if the vote is unsuccessful, they come back and they say, OK, fine. It's, it's you know, in other words, in order for you to, you know, if a majority of the House of representatives was willing to say that there was fraud that meant we couldn't count it, then you could have some, you know, then then you might have some uh, um, 
you know, then then you can maybe go back to the states and and do something. Um, so just uh, let me stop there because again, I want people to really track this because there's so much disinformation and, and right, right. you know that once once the once the megaphones get a hold of it, it loses all nuance. So I really want us to be very painstaking here. So when the 70 Democratic representatives in 2016 uh, decided that they would not certify the election of Donald Trump, that that does show us that there is a recourse at this event at this time. The the recourse should have been for Trump. You need to get X number of representatives who who Correct. say that we will decertify. It's not, it's not, you shouldn't focus on Mike Pence if he's a ministerial function. It, and of course, you remember Josh Hawley and, and many other folks who were, uh, you know, pretty overt, even after the riot, were still voting to decertify and gave speeches for that. I don't know if you remember all that, but I happen to be on the Hill that day. <laughs> I remember pretty well. But, um, the you know, so that would have been the proper process for Trump yes. to pursue, Correct. Yes. And the fact that he focused on Pence and it was asking Pence to do something that was illegal, um, um, you know, that's part of the, uh, uh, you know, that's part of this conspiracy scheme that he's being charged with. So that's the federal, I mean, there's the conspiracy in Georgia, Fulton, I understand, but in County, there's also the conspiracy on the federal level in DC. Right. And so right. just, just, this is kind of a side point, but if Trump somehow magically uh, was smart enough to figure out that it's not about Pence and it is about persuading fellow Republicans in the in the House and Senate to decertify. Uh, would he have not been charged by Smith or Fannie Willis? Yeah, I mean, if he had pursued channels that were legal, he would he would not have committed a crime. I mean, I, I think the, the the you know the, the thing about Georgia too is we're forgetting about the call he made to Rafson, the Secretary of State Rafson. Well, I want to get to that, but you could talk. Yeah, but, but I'm just I'm just saying there's like a whole level of like I mean, you know, Trump, you know, he is surrounded I think by lawyers who are giving him extraordinarily terrible advice, and they were telling him I mean when he calls up the Secretary of State and says go find me in eleven thousand votes. Um, I mean, there is a Georgia law that governs how these votes are counted and how it's presented. And, and all of that had been accomplished. There is no legal way for the secretary of state to just kind of say, um, we're missing some. Let's start over. I mean, that that would be an illegal. He's pushing for an illegal act. Um, so, so this is very important to stop here. So rewinding the tape. Uh, first mistake was. Un misunderstanding the role that the vice president played. So I think that's pretty clear. The right. second mistake is misunderstanding the power that he had within the House and Senate. Instead of talking to election representatives or political representatives in the state of Georgia after they had certified the electors, right? So you have this window after the election till certification in each state happens to do whatever you need to do legally. Once right. that door closes, you attempting to talk to a elected official, whatever party, doesn't matter, about, about this fact, about whether or fact or not fact, about your belief that the election was stolen, that then becomes a crime because the door has closed, correct? It, 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 I think a general statement that the election was fraudulent would not be a crime. What is a crime is specifically, and if you've listened to the call with Raffensperger, it's like, I mean, there are some fairly, I mean, kind of implied, but kind of explicit threats in there. And it's it's when you start pushing people to like 
violate their oath of office in order to, to do what you want them to do, that's that's the illegality, right? So but, but let me uh, get clear so everybody can follow this train because you can get lost on this choo-choo train to the White House, right? The choo-choo train, excuse me, to the Capitol right. Hill. The choo-choo train had left the day that Georgia certified the results. Right. So the call to the call, the call in quotes, happened after that date, correct? Right. Okay. Well, so that, I don't I don't remember. I mean, I don't remember. Wouldn't it be it would be legal if the call happened before there was certification? Because that's just that's just me as a citizen going, hey man, there's something wrong here. Uh I mean, obviously you can interpret the calls multiple ways. It's not a good call as as not a, perfect, not a perfect call. Yeah. It's not a perfect call. But you know, there is this to be lenient, this this view of it that says, look, I if there's this many Brad ballots that are fraudulent, I really only need this many. I mean, it's yes, you can take that two ways, right? I really only need this amount if if this X amount of but we could debate the calls the cows come home because Trump is always inherently two-sided. So it's very you know, you can always read things however you want to read it. But in, I really need to know whether the call happened after the votes were certified. That's a key well, thing. Well, here's the, here's the nature of conspiracy law, which is, you know, and that's one of the, you know, one of the things that the, the evidence suggests that actually this whole plan to declare victory, regardless of what the results were, um, there there was planning of that before even the election itself. I mean, there's oh, absolutely. That's a very Trump play, though. That's Trump. Yeah. I, want. I mean, there's video of Roger Stone doing this. There's like right. memos. It's like, right. and there's like there's a whole sequence of events uh, internally, you know, in November after the election, where it becomes very, you know, it's like they kind of saw where things were going, and they were like, we got to stop this, and we're going to stop it using and what amounted to illegal means, right? So it's like if if Trump had limited his um, if if all Trump had done was like call members of Congress and say you need to object on January sixth, that would have been legal, um, because Congress those those individual uh, members and senators they have the legal power to object. You know whether they get enough of them in order to force um, a, to a separate session. I mean it's like I mean I don't think Trump ever would have gotten a majority of either the Senate or the House to agree that the, the election was fraudulent. But and I think. And I think they knew that, which is why they were pursuing these extra legal and illegal avenues. Um, so, 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 yeah, there is definitely a lot of illegality that could happen before December thirteenth. But I, but I, but I don't I, think it would have mattered. I mean, I, I think the January second call to to Brad Raffensperger, uh, what's his name, Raffens, right, yeah, not, not an easy name to say, yeah. Raffensperger or Burger Perger, Burger, yeah, P P Raffensperger, January second. To me, like that, according to the logic you've laid out, which to me is pretty unimpeachable, the obviously the big the big mistake is the thinking that Mike Spence Mike Spence is your Deus ex machina that's going to solve your problem. Right, right. That's that's whether that's a crime or just stupidity is not really relevant. The crime is that you are calling up um, the Secretary of State who's overseeing the election on January second. After the the uh, the ballot tally of the of, uh, actually the electors have been sent. I guess they're. I remember doing this in Nebraska. They made a big deal about it. I forgot how it was all done, but I forget how it's actually tabulated and sent to to the to Congress. But nevertheless, um, 
it was past that. I don't know if that was the date that they were. I know that the vote, the certification vote happened on the 6th. I, I forget when they actually send the tallies. But regardless, they'd already basic, they'd already validated the election. Okay. Well, he, I mean, that, that's the thing. So that's like, a January, crime. I mean, that's yeah, a crime. January, January 6th, January 6th is not the relevant day. The, de the December 13th is the relevant. Correct. Day. Okay. We, we agree on that. So now, so the, the difference here, this is where I'm trying to find the bright line as we as debaters talk about a lot. It was not actually the bright line argument was not used that much in my day, it became much bigger in your day. But I still think it's a great way to talk about these things. So the bright line in this case is the dates that were I mean, the actual January 7th, second call, which is one bright line. And then any action taken uh, beyond that, uh, beyond just a call, all the other actions taken after December 13th are also very much relevant uh, to to basically, you know, upsetting the the apple cart and in, in a criminal way. I get all that. The question is, the seventy people that voted to decertify in two thousand sixteen Trump's election. If let's say they're on their way to Washington to vote to decertify. Would it have been illegal for any of those people in their respective jurisdictions to talk to their own secretaries of state about their feelings? Would that have been illegal? Again, it depends on what they say. If they just call their secretary of state up and say, um, um, uh, I think there's, I think some there's something fishy here. here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I think there's something fishy here probably is not an illegal statement. Um, the. Um, you need to decertify the election and find me another 11,000 votes, or I'm going to go on, uh, go on TV and call you a threat to democracy. That is illegal because that you're, 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 you're threatening somebody um, uh, to force them to take an action that, that they themselves are not legally um, power, empowered to do. Okay. Um, and this is kind of where I was hoping the discussion would go, because basically uh, in terms of its, in the treatment of the media and just my own take actually the core question here is whether the call is protected by freedom of speech let me opine a little bit so i can set you up properly um as a lawyer you understand this and our and our, and our mutual friend um jeff grell who's a great rico lawyer understands this even better the um you cannot your, your first amendment rights go out the window when <laughs> you're using your freedom of speech for an illegal act, okay? So we're not gonna we're not gonna give you freedom of speech rights, uh, Gambino crime family uh, in, in your racketeering enterprise. Okay, that's a pretty much a basic no-brainer explanation of how those two things compete and Rico wins every time, right? So mm -hmm. so in this case, um, as opposed to a Democratic elector calling up the Secretary of State saying there's something funny here. The mistake I think that you're saying happened and Fannie Willis is saying is that on top of saying, you know, this is real funny business. I really think there's some fraud going on. The use of leverage uh, is, is the crime. Is yeah. like you're using your 
Well, he has no standing. I guess he's still president. So there's some standing actually till he's not in office. So I guess there's- well, no, I mean, I don't think the fact that he's president has, is legally relevant at all. It's, it's, it's simple at its bottom line, it's extortion. It's like, you do what I want or I'm gonna rain down all of my horde of angry MAGA types on you. Um, I mean, that's, you know, uh, I'm gonna ruin well, your let's life. Stop there. Let's stop there just for a second. Because as you remember, now this, the Gore case, you know, Bush v. Gore was, you know, I mean, it's it's almost like the Kennedy assassination in some way, but like people will debate this till the end of the Republic, which could be coming. We don't know. Uh, but that was a super, super tight thing. And as you know, both sides were quite heated about this. And in this case, we're in that case, the Republicans were quite vehement in protesting outside of secretary of state's offices and election offices. I mean, there was a degree of intimidation in that situation. I think you remember that because these poor these poor election workers are in there trying to determine what's a hanging chad and all this stuff was so hilarious. And there's people bouting on the windows and they're screaming. Yep. I mean, it was intimidation, right? And so I'm going, wait, why is nobody being prosecuted in that environment? Because there's ringleaders of that. Just, just throwing that out there. Maybe it's a straw man, but I'm throwing it out there. Well, I, I think I, I think there could have been prosecutions. I, I really do. Um, I think the as a practical matter, you know, Al Gore conceded, and the whole thing became kind of moot. Um, and, and by the way, Gore conceded. You know, the Supreme Court decided Bush v. Gore. The Supreme Court said that this that, that the Supreme Court of Florida could not order a, a partial recount in a few counties. I mean, Gore's <clears throat> Gore's huge mistake, which is you know, it's it's was not asking for a recount statewide, right? So when, when Gore only, you know, Florida state law allowed him to ask for a recount only in certain counties, which he did, which opened the door to the equal protection argument that the Bush campaign made, which is ultimately why the Supreme Court decided what it did. And um, so once that happened, you know, uh, it was kind of, you know, Florida was gonna certify that Bush won and its electors were going to meet and make that certification. And at that point, Excuse me, Al Gore conceded. I think it was December seventh, actually. When mm -hmm. he conceded. Yeah, you know, yeah. which is which is not what Trump did in this in twenty twenty. If if Trump right. had just if Trump had just said if he, if Trump had just kind of said a political argument, you know, like if he had just gone to the voters and said, "Look, I don't have any means to address this anymore. I mean, I, I mean, you know, Joe Biden will be sworn in on January twentieth, but I was robbed." And I'm going to spend the next four years trying to avenge your your rights and the fraud that you were you know committed. That's that's what that, that would have been. I mean, I would have had issues with it because I still think it's delusional. But that would have been within his rights. In some ways, that would have been very much like the 1824 1828 elections, because when in 1824 John Quincy Adams was elected president, and it was it, <clears throat> no one got a majority of the electoral college who went to the House of Representatives. And despite the fact that Andrew Jackson got the most popular votes, the House of Representatives uh, picked Quincy Adams, and and Andrew Jackson never forgave uh, Quincy Adams or his political party. And you know, it, you know, Jackson spent the next four years basically engaging in in political warfare and won 1828 overwhelmingly because he was the aggrieved party. He was a backroom deal. Well, I mean, you know, blah blah blah. It was absolutely, and you and I, and I've said this. I said yeah. this on the Real Debate podcast, and I've said this to you personally. I, I mean, the best strategy for Trump would have been exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Because 
he would have been the prohibitive favorite. If January 6th had not happened, given what, whether you're pro-Biden or not, or you support the policies or whatever, Biden's right. approval numbers aren't great. And if uh, Trump had um, behaved as you had suggest, as you suggest, there, there's, you know, even with the indictments, I mean, I think he would not have lost the five to six percent of Republicans that right. he needs right. now. He, he, he I mean, can't the, get them back. They're not coming the, back. So the he's Constitution, at 42%. Constitution, yeah, the Constitution does not require him to attend the inaugural. The Constitution does not require him to shake Joe Biden's hand. The Correct. Constitution does not require him to engage in a, in a, in a transition process. So um, he could have done all of that. He could have he could have huffed and puffed and take his ball and gone back to Mar-a-Lago and spent the next four years reminding everybody of his grievance, which is which he did anyway. But I agree. So let me let me just before we exit out of this and we'll talk more at another time. I just want to give my position on this because I think yours is is quite well articulated. And to me, it comes down to as always, almost always the case with Trump. Uh, it's form over substance. It's the form in which he de delivers his grievance that often gets him the most trouble. And the, the call is obviously an example of that. Um, and, and the threat embedded in that is also the problematic thing. I'm thinking though, as I've articulated you know, in my post on Party Farm Report, that I don't know if a jury, even in a jury in Democratic Fulton County or a jury in 92% Democratic DC, they might think that we are parsing it a little too much in terms of how you speak. I get your argument, okay? But an effective defense attorney would try to make this all about speech and muddy the waters. like that somehow there's really not that major salient difference between Democrats protesting election and Trump protesting election. And that bright line we talked about, and I think helped listeners very well to understand that there is a clear bright line here. I think a defense team is gonna try to muddy that and that it's all governed by free speech. What do you think of that? Well, I think the first problem is you don't get to argue selective prosecution to a jury. So the jury will never hear, um, you know, Hillary got away with this or Joe Biden or Hunter Biden got away with this. Those arguments are legally not relevant to the question of whether Trump violated a statute or not. Right. So. So, I mean, I, and I think that's I think part of the problem, I think Trump's Trump's reaction to all these charges has been entirely political and not at all legal. Right. So he's doing a lot of things in public that he's never going to be able to do in court. Uh, so that's number one. <clears throat> I think number two is. Um, like, for example, in the Georgia case, right, we have the recording of his call to the Secretary of State. Um, and the, the whole call is going to be played to the jury, right? So it's like, it's not, you can't, there's there's too much direct evidence of him actually engaging in, in you know, kind of like, kind of mobbish, extortionist kind of language uh, for him to be able to spin it in front of the jury. As a matter of fact, I think they're going to look really stupid um, um, trying to argue, well, he did. He really didn't mean that, you know. He he really didn't mean, you know, blah blah blah. I mean, it's the, it speaks for itself. The tape speaks for itself. Well, let me Same stop thing. you there because that's really important. Because that's when I sat in on the Fortenberry uh, trial. The whole there, you know, it, it goes on for over a week, and there's all these witnesses. But at the end of the day, the um, the case comes down to a nine minute phone call with this doctor who was part of the previous fundraiser. And who says in coded language, you know, this rich dude, uh, Shiguri from uh, Paris, is not going to be participating this year. Now, I know Fortenberry, and I understand we can do a whole podcast on his state of mind and how he interpreted that claim. 
and I think I still believe he's innocent. But again, that's just me. But um, there's various ways that he could interpret what that means that Shiguri won't participate because there's three parts to the fundraiser and only one of them was actually a donation for political campaign. There was a knighting and you know, the Knight of St. Gregory and all the shit that, that a foreigner could pay for. It could pay to a nonprofit to have some special events and banquet, et cetera. So parsing it, um, you know, I, I understand Fort Berry's state of mind, but of course jurors don't because they didn't work for the guy for five and a half years. They don't understand how he operates. So it's a really a tough thing. They're going to hear this call just like we had to hear that call nine or 10 times in LA at the Fortenberry trial. They're going to hear this bad call. And so the job of the defense, so I want you to put the defense hat on, is like they're going to have to win this state of mind argument, which is really hard. How can they? Well, I think Trump's best argument, um, frankly, is that the lawyers were telling him it was okay, right? Now, I think his lawyers are crazy and delusional, and I think they were giving really bad advice, and several of them are getting disbarred. You know, Rudy Giuliani's law license in New York has been suspended pending hearings. So John Eastman, who's involved in this, uh, is losing his law license in California as we speak. Um, you know, Sidney Powell, uh, Jenna Ellis, they're all they're all in trouble with their state bars. Because they're making, they were making false statements of both law and fact to to to, to judges. You can't. But couldn't you say? I mean, but, I know but, that. Well, go on. Sorry. Let me, let me finish though. Sorry, but Trump, Trump's not a lawyer, right? So Trump could very reasonably say, "Look, these are the lawyers I hired. They said this is legal to do." Um, so you know, advice of counsel is a is a uh, in that in terms of the question of intent. You know, did Trump intend to violate the law? I mean, advice of counsel really goes to that intent question. The problem with asserting an advice of counsel defense is. A, a practical one, which is Trump himself is going to have to get on the stand and testify in order in order to introduce that defense. He's going to have to get on the stand to do to make that argument, make that testimony himself. And I don't think Trump is under any circumstances ought to be taking the stand in his own defense, frankly. So, um, but is that a, I mean, I always find that like every case that doesn't go your way, uh, you know, to claim I have a bad attorney defense or the attorneys gave me forced me to violate the law. Although that is interesting. I mean, like if the attorneys did approve, because the attorneys were on the call with the Secretary of State. Right, right. So if they're on the call with the Secretary of State, that alone, according to what you're telling me, is a violation because it's after the magical December 13th date. You shouldn't well, be calling the Secretary of State on January 2nd. So that's kind of a good argument. Like, why did you even let this happen? Well, been, and a number of the attorneys actually have been charged with the same crime in the Georgia case, right? So, um, um, you know, the fact that they're an attorney, you know, doesn't mean they can't commit a crime. So, um, but couldn't you say if he's to, listening to his attorneys, wouldn't wouldn't one way out be Trump's innocent? Let's convict the attorney. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, it, it, again, but he has to he has to introduce the advice of counsel defense, and the mm -hmm. only way he could do that is take the stand himself. And the minute he does that, he is like, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've seen videotapes of some of the depositions that Trump has given no. over the years. Um, uh, they're out there. You can find them on the Internet. Um, okay. And he is a terrible, terrible witness because mm -hmm. Trump's people don't understand how law discourse or how, how the process of law is different than the process of like ordinary conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Trump Trump's way of dealing with with an un, inconvenient facts is basically kind of bluster around them, you know, do the whataboutism, you know, you know, it's like, you know, but Hillary did this. And it's like that shit doesn't fly in a court of law. OK, so he tries that shit on the stand 
objection, instruct the witness uh, uh, to answer, strike the answer, all of it, he's going to look like shit. I mean, go. I mean, honest to God, go go watch these depositions that are out there. That he just he looks like crap. No, he's terrible. And, and, you know, because he's like he because he, he, Trump never actually addresses. He knows he he knows he fucked up, and he it, it, Trump's whole communication goal is to like avoid talking about his fuck ups. So it's like it's always always the other person's fault. It's always he's it's always this whataboutism, and and it, like I said, that works on an interpersonal level. It does not fly in a court of law because so the, the rules of evidence are very rigid about what is relevant and what is not relevant. And um, um, he can't pull that shit. That's super helpful. Thank you. That is really true. I, I will say this. Um, well, the question, OK, the thing that you're pushing, which is really important because Trump is out there, you know, using a political argument to try to win a legal case. I mean, so, I, you know, if I try to follow his logic, I, the only reason you're continuing to make this political argument that the Georgia election was fraudulent. Uh, and here are my reasons why, um, is somehow to influence the jury, because you're not going to be able to, I mean, prospective jurors, I mean, I mean, because how, since none of those arguments can be used in, a, in, in the actual courtroom, your job is to kind of muddy the waters of the jury pool, correct? Yeah, and also intimidate the judges, you know, they, they some some people have doxed the grand jurors, the Georgia grand jurors that issued the indictment. So their names and addresses and phone numbers are, are leaked publicly, and they're getting death threats. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know the whole the whole kind of you know, if you follow Trump's statements on Truth Social, and I mean he's essentially you know he's he's gone after the judge uh, the uh, the judge in D.C. He's gone after Jack Smith's family. Uh, he's He's accused the prosecutor in Georgia of like being uh, having slept with gang members, you know, all of which is not true, all of which is designed to like delegitimize these charges in in the in the eyes of a prospective juror pool and and or intimidate witnesses, too, by the way. So it's like, I mean, anybody who knows they're going to testify against Trump knows at this point that they're going to get a whole bunch of um, Internet shit thrown at them. Yeah. Um, does he you know. does he have any claim on two things that happened in this case. The one is the grand jurors talking and doing national interviews uh, before the grand jury testimony result and, you know, revealing the questions and revealing things that happened in the grand jury. Is there any case there? And the second thing, of course, is the premature leak of the indictment. Uh, no, I mean, there, there, there's, he's already pursued the grand jury thing. He, he, he kept trying to sue the prosecutor. I mean, I think there were two or maybe even three uh, motions he filed with the district court and even went up to the Supreme Court of Georgia to try and prevent Fannie Willis from doing this. And that was one of the arguments they made was grand juror misconduct. All got, you know, the, the actual response is the right one, which is, you know, if there's any misconduct, you need to raise that in, is in part of part of the criminal case. You can't you can't file a separate case to prevent her from filing charges. It's like if you get if you get charges filed against you, then you can make those arguments. Now, <clears throat> I think those arguments are are not good i don't think they're going to go anywhere i think the um um uh, uh you know the, the you know the, I, I don't like what the green the, and the and the thing about releasing the document early is just it's just an administrative error i mean there's no i mean there's nothing there that you could make, make no, a, his rights weren't infringed upon it exactly right i mean if, if they had if they had like leaked the document and then decided not to charge him oh fair enough yeah you know then then defamation you know whatever but it's like it's like you know, it, it got out a little early fine whatever so well we've come a long way in this country uh you know thank you so much for talking uh, let me, because we've let come... me just make one real oh, sure, quick sure, point. Sorry. one real quick point too which is which is you know 
I mean, I'm not a Trump supporter, so I don't. I, I hesitate to put myself in the in the shoes of somebody who supports Trump. But, um, you know, all of these legal problems that Trump is facing right now are are entirely of his own making, right? It's like he wants to blame the Democrats. He wants to blame Jack Smith. He wants to blame this cabal of Marxist, you know, culturist whatevers. Um, but the reality is, if if he just returned the top secret documents when they were asked, if he had just stopped trying to call election officials after the election had been certified, if he had, you know, um, um, you know, not falsified documents in New York, well, I mean, that's that's the weakest of the four cases. But um, um, and it's like, I mean, I, I mean, at, at what point? I mean, this is a guy who blames everybody else for problems that he himself is creating for himself. And like all of this stuff, the January 6th stuff, the secret document stuff, all of that happened in like the last three or four months of his presidency. You know, it's like, I mean, I mean, it's an absurdist I, tragedy is what it is. It's really sad. It, and self-sabotage uh, doesn't even come close to it. No, it doesn't come close. It's a uh, grand guignol, as I think is the type of drama. It's very absurd. But you know, I think that the um, the thing is, jo Donald Trump never changed. He just kept operating as a real estate tycoon uh, where he felt, he felt, he feels that it's his right to call up anybody at any time to talk about anything. And, and the problem with D.C., uh, the problem with people in politics and in the legislative world is I noticed because I worked on the Hill for five and a half years is P's and Q's matter. And you, this is why he was so frustrated because these are people who choose to go into this line of work because by nature, they are law-abiding people and they, and, they, and they are, you know, not nearly as charismatic or funny or interesting as Donald J. Trump, but they are, like it or not, this is how the administrative state works. And, and, you can't just call up the secretary of state like he's your best buddy yeah. and fix it. You just can't. And that's where the good of Trump, which is kind of the, you know, the wild and anarchistic, like blow up the system aspect of him and call out obvious things that, you know, people in Washington won't talk about, which is, of course, you know, the things that we've talked about greatly. You know, there's a there's some real issues like unilateral wars of choice abroad, crime in our cities broken border, China kicking our ass on trade, although China's in deep trouble now. There's a lot of things that Trump did bring to the fore as a kind of free speaking person, but his nature is not to play nice and by the niceties of the system. And, and this is really what this is about. I mean, he just doesn't play by the rules. So, well, listen, thank you. I think this country's come a long way since uh, Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. I mean, my God, as we were saying before the call, I mean, things really were backroom deals. And, uh, but that world is not there so much anymore. And um, even, even if Trump- I, I have to say, I, I mean, there is this kind of pervasive sense on the right, and it's not entirely wrong. I mean, I think there's some truth to this, that elites are cutting deals behind closed doors in terms of like offshoring jobs, um, tax policies, you know, what the immigration, whatever it is. And, you know, and people don't feel like they have a role in their government anymore. And so they, and, and they throw around words like corruption and, 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 you know, burn it all down, blah, 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 blah. 
But but people don't understand history. I mean, the American politics in the 19th century was unbelievably corrupt, right? It took, it was like, go look up Tammany Hall, go look up kind of the patronage stuff. I mean, it was like the whole progressive movement started in the late 19th century, early 20th century. It was all designed to fix all of this shit. And, and for a long part of the 20th century, you know, it's like, I mean, as bad as you think it is, it can be worse. And it was worse, you know, uh, 150, 170 years ago. So, um, um, and I, I wish more people understood that. So, Well, I'm going to give you the last word. Thanks for talking to me, Greg. And uh, we'll talk soon, buddy. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.